This is your Tuesday Daily Delivery. I am Michael Rand. Lots to get to today. Going to spend a heavy part of the first part of this show talking Vikings-Bears from Monday Night Football. Vikings get out of Chicago with a 17-9 win. Aesthetically speaking, it was not a masterpiece, but it does go down as a victory for the Vikings. We'll break that down. I've got some thoughts on it. We'll hear a little bit of post game from Mike Zimmer and three takeaways from Ben Gessling, Vikings beat writer who was in Chicago. Got to talk about the wild four game losing streak now after falling seven to four to Dallas on Monday night. Now they're on a little extended break in NHL breaking early um, instead of uh, you know starting their Christmas break a little early because of extended COVID outbreaks among a lot of different teams. Wolves feeling those COVID pinch too. Five different Wolves players now in the protocols. Marcus Fuller will join me too to talk Gophers men's basketball and the continued surprising season they are having. So a jam-packed show. But like I said, what did I miss? If you went to bed early or early-ish and missed the Vikings 17-9 win over the Bears, uh, you were spared, I guess. It's kind of funny, you know. We talked on Monday's show about YouTube TV dropping ESPN for a short while over the weekend, but it came back in time for local fans, everybody who has YouTube TV to watch the Vikings-Bears game on Monday night. And maybe it would have been just as well if they had stayed away for a little while longer because that was a hard one to watch. You know, sometimes, you know, teams play really well. It's a back-and-forth game, and you say it's a shame somebody had to lose uh, this felt like it was a game almost that was a shame somebody had to win. Neither team playing with much discipline. Neither team able to really do what it wanted to do on offense. The Vikings struggled on their offensive line. Ben Gessling's going to have some thoughts on that in just a minute. But you know, to me, just the, the failure of the offensive line is just—it's a—it's a continued problem, and to have it keep wrecking games and potentially wreck seasons is just inexcusable that they have not been able to get it right as they like to say and fix this offensive line to the point where they're not getting blown up on the interior of the line against certain opponents every single season uh that's just an it's an utter failure it's 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 inexcusable and it's a big part of the reason why this team can't find any level of consistency now they escaped because Chicago can't get out of its own way Chicago is a awful football team right now that is just playing out the string for a coach that is almost certainly going to be done at the end of the season. Um, So they were playing a good opponent to get a much-needed win, but that offensive line is just a a problem, a problem that has not ever been fixed, even if it has been addressed. Other thing I was thinking about is Kirk Cousins. You know, Vikings... Vikings had less than 200 yards of total offense. Bears outgained them 2-1 to one in this game. Bears had almost 400 yards. Vikings had less than 200 yards. Now, some of that is the Vikings trying to protect a lead in the second half. And we should remember, too, that uh, you know this would have been a 17-3 to game if not for a you know meaningless except in one context touchdown at the on the very last play of the game. Would have been a 17-3 final. Bears did score on the final play of the game to make it 17-9. Don't kick the extra point because it's um, not part of the game outcome. I bet some gamblers were uh, were kicking themselves. Although, you know, I saw people talking on Twitter. The line for this game was anywhere from seven Bears Bears plus seven to Bears plus eight point five. I saw as much as that. So, 
if you were a gambling person, you had a great deal of interest on that last play that got the Bears to a an eight point loss. You you maybe either almost had a strange backdoor cover, or if you bet on the Vikings, you were pulling your hair out, or you were you know loving the fact that they didn't kick the extra point. There was a certain gambling element to that final play of the game that was probably the only and best drama at the at, at the end of that game. But the fact that it even <clears throat> was reasonably close in the second half was a a function of two things. One, the Vikings just couldn't move the ball at all. And, you know, two, Kirk Cousins just couldn't get anything going. At the end of the first half, I actually had this thought to myself there. You know, the Vikings are up 10-3. They're trying to get more points at the end of the first half. And I I didn't tweet this. I thought about it. I just didn't want to be too pessimistic. I was like, how are the Vikings going to blow this and go into the halftime 10-10? And literally three plays later, Cousins throws an interception right into the Bears' arms. Now, Justin Jefferson was probably held tripped up on the play, but, um, you know, looked like the Bears were going to come down and get some points. Now, the Vikings got out of that with a blocked field goal, but, uh, <clears throat> you know, just every time they have a chance to put a team away, they are unable to do that, and, you know, they were, to a certain degree, in control of the game, and I guess that was the key takeaway that I took from Mike Zimmer's post game. Here's Zimmer after the game. You know, I thought we were in control of the game for the most part the entire time. Um, you know, it was disappointing offensively. We didn't move the ball very well, I didn't think, in the second half. Um, gave them too many opportunities. And defensively, we had some turnovers. Uh, I thought we, they played real hard. I thought we did a, a decent job on the quarterback running. Um, but, uh, you know, for the most part, I thought I thought we played Played a good good football team. You know their pass rush is is definitely outstanding uh, with Quinn and Hicks, um, all of the guys they have. So, uh, but it was good to get a win tonight. I mean, I guess it was seventeen to three for a lot of that second half. It never really felt like the Bears were going to seriously threaten in that game. Although it was more a function of their own incompetence than anything the Vikings were doing that made me feel that way. Take a playcation to Mystic Lake for 24-7 gaming, fun restaurants and bars, and luxurious hotel rooms. And join Club M to bask in the rewards. Follow the lights to Mystic Lake, where every day is play day. Yeah, a win is a win. I'll get into some playoff scenarios here in a minute. But first, I want to hear from Ben Gessling, Vikings beat writer, with his three takeaways. Checks in with a voicemail here on Daily Delivery. Here are my three big takeaways as I sit in my hotel room after the Vikings' 17-9 win over the Bears at Soldier Field Monday night. Number one, the offensive line remains their biggest problem. That's been the case for seven years, probably with Mike Zimmer, but it is still the case now. They've tried every configuration they could come up with. Did it again with Christian Derrissaw at left tackle and Mason Cole at right guard. Ole Udo back on the bench tonight, but Akeem Hicks gave Cole as much trouble as he gave Garrett Bradbury, as much as he gave Pat Offline. He has wrecked the Vikings' offensive line for a long time. Did it again tonight. Robert Quinn had two sacks, beating Derrissaw around the edge. And that group is going to have a big say in whether the Vikings go to the playoffs, especially when you have Aaron Donald next week, Kenny Clark the week after that, and Akeem Hicks one more time. The interior of that offensive line has struggled for a lot of the year, and I think they're going to have a lot of tough matchups that they have to win if the Vikings are going to go to the playoffs. Number two, a lot of talk about the officiating tonight, a lot of talk about player safety. But the big calls of the game, the one on uh, the the hit over Tyler Conklin in the middle, the one where the Bears defender went low on Brian O'Neill trying to get to uh, make a tackle, and then, of course, the one that got Eric Kendricks tossed out of the game with Justin Fields sliding 
and Kendrick's hitting him in the head. It took me back to a conversation I had with Harrison Smith a couple of years ago after the Anthony Barr rule or the Aaron Rodgers rule, whatever you want to call it, was implemented where you have to not put your full weight on a defender, put your full weight on a ball carrier, rather, as you hit him. I remember Harrison Smith saying, I want to evolve with the game, too. I, I want to change with a lot of these new rules, but they have to be physically possible. They have to be things that can de- that defenders can execute in real time and pull off without having to make a choice between hurting themselves, hurting someone they're playing against, or giving up a big play. A lot of these rules have certainly protected players more, which is a good thing. They've protected offensive players especially, and I think we all understand why that is. But a lot of these defenders, I think, get put in awfully difficult situations where they have to make decisions in a split second that sometimes put them in physically awkward positions that they just aren't going to be able to pull off at high speed in real time. So uh, spare a thought for your defenders, uh, both if the call went for your team and if it went against it, because a lot of these rules put them in a difficult spot. Finally, Justin Fields got his first start against the Vikings tonight, got his first start against a team that made at least some effort to go up and get him in the draft. And as I looked at him missing throws in the red zone, fumbling the ball, kind of backpedaling from defenders, the old Garth Brooks song, Unanswered Prayers, stuck in my head a little bit. The, the tagline from that song is, Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. And I think if they had pulled that trade off, there is a very real chance that Kirk Cousins would have said, Okay, fine. Once it gets to be June 1st and you can split my cap number over two years, I want to trade. I want out of here. If this is your guy, good luck. Hope you can play with him this year. Whether Cousins would have been able to pull that off is an open question, but I certainly think, based on what I've heard, that he would have tried. So if Justin Fields is the quarterback of this team, are the Vikings in the playoff race? I think that's a hard scenario to see being plausible. Maybe it would have been different. He might have been coached differently. He certainly would have had better weapons with Justin Jefferson, Adam Thielen, Delvin Cook, and everybody else. But as difficult of a time as he had diagnosing things, getting rid of the ball, trying to make plays with his arm and not just with his feet, I have a hard time thinking he would have kept the Vikings in as many games as Kirk Cousins has when their defense hasn't been very good. So a team that needs to win now, a coach and a GM that are trying to keep their jobs, maybe that's different. If Fields is the quarterback and they get a little more time. But for now, in a game that they had to win, I think the Vikings can probably feel good about the fact that Justin Fields was on the other sideline right now and not theirs. Maybe he ends up killing them for the next decade, but Mike Zimmer and Rick Spielman need to win right now. And so the fact that they didn't get Justin Fields in this draft, at least for 2021, may have turned out to be a good thing for them. Good thoughts from Ben. Really enjoyed um, having him hop on for the show. Leave that voicemail. Just good perspective from the game and just some big, good, big picture stuff. Speaking of big picture, here's my final thought. The Vikings are technically right now in that final seventh playoff spot in the NFC. Whether they can stay there largely will be determined, like Ben said, by whether their offensive line can hold up in these final three games. Can they win at least two of them to give themselves a chance which would mean beating either the Rams at home next week or Green Bay uh, in two weeks, and then presumably beating these Bears again in the home finale. Now that will, you know, can they win two out of those three? I don't know. I, I put that as maybe a coin flip, and if they can win two out of those three, their their chances are basically a coin flip to get in the playoffs. Right now, five thirty eight says a thirty two percent chance. Again, the Saints right now have a forty five percent chance. Um, their their schedule down the stretch is easier. You got other teams that are going to be seven and seven. Either the Eagles or Washington's going to be seven and seven after tonight's game. 
So, you know, a lot of teams clustered right in there. I don't know. I, I still think it's pretty tenuous. I, I don't have a ton of faith in this team right now, um, just based on the way they've played. But they have, you know, they've gotten themselves to, to 500 a few different times this year. They got themselves to 500 after starting 1-3, and three, got to 3-3, three and three, fell to 3-5, and five, got to 5-5, five and five, fell to 5-7, and seven, got to 7-7. Seven and seven. They have been resilient. Can they get over the hump at a certain point and go above that 500 mark? That will be the key to giving themselves a chance to get into the playoffs. Happy to have Marcus Fuller back on Daily Delivery. Does a great job covering the Gopher men's basketball team, covering one of the better stories in this market right now, 9-1, and one, um, getting some national attention a little bit. They've re- showed up in a couple of early brackets as, you know, Male mid to late round seeds, but still like the fact that this team, even at this point in the year, is showing up in NCAA tournament projections is uh, beyond what I would have imagined. We've we've kind of talked about the surprise of this team um, as, as it keeps going. I don't know how much more of a surprise it is, though. What's uh, you know, Marcus? First of all, welcome. And what what are your what are your impressions on this this now nine and one team? Yeah, I appreciate having me on as always. Uh, I know it's go for football season pretty soon here going in the bowl. So I was glad to get it. And then obviously last week uh, was signing day. So sometimes, you know, even the, the best stories uh, for go for basketball uh, kind of take a backseat to, to football. But in this case, like you said, Ben Johnson um, nationally uh, is getting a lot of attention. I would say that right now, uh, Minnesota and Iowa state are probably the two biggest surprise in the country. Uh, both teams were picked to finish uh, at the bottom of their league, respective leagues, Big 12, Big 10 at the beginning of the season. Um, you know, Iowa State is a top 10 team right now. So we're not talking about that much of a, a jump for the Gophers. But again, to be uh, in the NCAA tournament mix um, as a projected beginning of the season, bottom seed in your conference, I think says a lot about um, not only what Ben Johnson and his staff have done as coaches, but uh, kind of what this these group of players have done so quickly. Uh, being a bunch of newcomers who have never played uh, primarily at the high major level and have now beaten uh, two high major teams and three in Pitt, uh, Mississippi State and Michigan and all three on the road. And I think, you know, you take away obviously their 9-1 start and the fact that this is the first year under Ben Johnson. And if you just judge it on the road wins side, uh, that's an incredible feat considering in the previous two seasons, uh, the Gophers had only won two road games on, under Richard Pitino, including 0-10 last year uh, in the Big Ten. I don't remember them winning three road games a lot during the Richard Pitino era. Maybe you have a better memory than I do. It might have happened, but uh, that feels rare for this program. Um, not and- in a season. Yeah, not in a season. I mean, they, you have the goalie back, to, I think, 2016-17 uh, when they uh, – when they went to the tournament for the first time uh, under Patino, I think, I believe they won five uh, games, road games that year. Um, But, you know, they, they won eight in a row that year just to be able to get uh, into the tournament and get a good seed. So this is a great start for uh, Ben Johnson on the road. And and he's going to lead need a lot of road wins. Uh, I want to say he's going to need a few more road wins and he's going to need to take care of business at home. I think if this team has a realistic shot at dance day tournament. The fact that we're even talking about that at this point, like I said, is a surprise to me, at least. And I know I asked Ben Johnson this a week or two ago, like, are, are we at a point where this team isn't really 
just a cute little story and a surprise anymore. What do you think? Have you seen enough to say, not that, hey, this is a, a great team, but that, that this is sustainable? Well, I would say that, you know, right now, if they were to win a couple more, um, you know, I want to say meaningful, they're all meaningful, but a couple more uh, games that, that, that uh, they're not supposed to win, maybe like in Illinois at home or another uh, team at home, I think they would be ranked. I mean, they're that close to being ranked. Um, and so do I think that this is a top 25 team uh, at the end of the day, at the end of the season? No, I don't think that that's sustainable. Uh, I do think that this team is capable, especially at home, of beating teams comparable to them. You know, uh, those favorable uh, games, you know, when you're talking about you're playing, uh, you know, at Rutgers at home, you're playing Nebraska or Penn State, Northwestern, um, you know, I mean, even even in Wisconsin, Wisconsin's ranked right now, but I think this is a team in Wisconsin that, um, you know, similar to Minnesota, they, they take care of the ball, they're not going to make too many mistakes, uh, and they give themselves a chance to win at the end of the game. So I would say that there's uh, more than a handful of games in the Big Ten that they can win at home. And they've already proven that they can surprise uh, someone at, on the road. So I say a couple more road wins that you're not supposed to, to get. And if they can take care of business at home against teams that they're supposed to beat and maybe beat a team or two that they're, they're not supposed to beat at home, I think they'll find themselves right on the NCAA tournament bubble at the end of the season. They won't be a ranked team, but they'll be right on the bubble. You know, it's kind of where you want to be, where this program has been for most of at least my time covering them in the last almost 20 years. And then you give yourself a chance at the end of the season. Um, so again, like you said, I don't think realistically that this is sustainable as a top 25 caliber team, uh, not with the depth that they have. You, you, we spoke about that before the show, the lack of depth, but I think if they can stay healthy, uh, if they continue to get as much as they can out of this six, seven man rotation, I think at the end of the season, you'll be looking at a team with about, you know, 17, 18 wins, and all they need is a couple more quality wins to, to possibly get themselves in the tournament. You're right. We did talk about the depth <clears throat> a little bit, and it's, you know, they are playing mostly, most nights it's six primary guys, the starters and uh, Sean Sutherland. It's, you know, you can you can win that way, but it takes, like you said, everybody's been relatively healthy. You know, Sutherland, Sutherland missed a couple games in there, at least one game that I remember. One game, yeah. Um, so, but you know, their, their best six or the, the six that they prefer have been generally available. Now we've seen a couple of the younger guys get mixed in when they could against some of these, you know, these non-conference opponents. Do you get the sense that, I mean, Ben Johnson obviously has, has made his rotation pretty clear that said he probably would love to have, you know, evidence that somebody else could step in as needed or to, to give these guys a little bit more of a breather you never know what's going to happen with injuries even foul trouble within a game um right. anybody you see that's you know played a little bit or that he's talked about that you can imagine you know being ready for minutes at this point yeah i think that uh you know they have two non-conference games left uh they play green bay and alcorn state and you know these are teams there should beat handily they should have beaten corpus christi handily and they had 28 turnovers which i look back at the history recent history of the program. And it was the most turnovers that Gophers have had since 2007. Um, when they lost at Purdue, they got blown out. Which was uh, bizarre I, coming off of those two games against the Michigan schools where they gave up, what, seven turnovers in those two games combined? Well, they had, yeah, they had 11 turnovers combined in the three really, really uh, obviously toughest competitions they've played so far, Mississippi State, Michigan State, and, and Michigan, 
in those three games, they combined for 11 turnovers and they were leading the country in fewest turnovers a game this season. Going into the Corpus Christi game, they only had eight turnovers a game that they averaged and they had 28, which I, again, I, I like to look up the numbers. It was the most turnovers, uh, the second most turnovers that a power five team has had this year uh, to Pitt, who they beat by one right. point on the road, but Pitt had 31 turnovers and a loss to Western Michigan. I'm sorry, a loss to West Virginia. So, you know, this is not, this is an outlier, obviously, so far. You know, I wouldn't say that 28 turnovers is something that's going to continue anything close to that, but it is a formula, a blueprint for uh, opponents in the future that, you know, if you pressure them enough, that they're, they might not uh, necessarily, um, you know, be close to that eight turnover a game mark. You know, I think Mississippi State and Michigan, um, they did a little bit of pressing, but it was more, every now and then and three quarter court press, um, you know, I, I think they were more worried about um, stopping them in the half court than they were anything. So I think if a team like Illinois, who they play on January 2nd to start big 10 play uh, when big 10 play resumes, I think Illinois is more of a high pressure team. Um, they have a lot of athleticism and other than Kofi, who's obviously a, a big, huge presence. Um, you've got a lot of, uh, uh, wing type of players from the six, five to six, eight range, and they're athletic and they can get after you. So I think that that's a game that I'm circling right now. And I'm saying, you know, coming off a not that long ago, 28 turnover game, can they handle that type of pressure? You know, and, and, and again, if, if it, if it works versus Corpus Christi, then Illinois will try it. If that works for Illinois, you know, you're going to see a lot of teams, uh, start pressuring, uh, Minnesota and, and seeing if they can handle it besides, you know, some of the guards that they have that have been doing a really good job handling the ball, like Peyton Willis, Luke Lowy, and EJ Stevens. It's kind of the three-headed monster uh, in the backcourt. And they're all they're all seniors, and they've all played a lot of college basketball, and they understand how to take care of the ball. And unfortunately, you know, a guy like Sean Southern comes off the bench, and he's done a great job scoring this year, but he had seven turnovers. And, you know, the big men, uh, even Eric Curry's done an amazing job coming off his injury plague career, which I wrote about earlier this season. You know, he had a few uh, careless turnovers um, and that, that's just something that they can't afford. You mentioned a few of the, the guards. I think <clears throat> one thing that's interesting to me about this team is that everybody seems so important. That said, Jameson Battle um, is certainly they're, you know, when they need a basket, he's the guy they go to in generally speaking, I think Peyton Willis maybe gets that role sometimes too, depending on matchups. But am I right in thinking that battle's been even better than advertised, even though we knew he scored 17 points a game last season that he's done it at this level, had the kind of game he had against Michigan. I've, I've been pretty impressed by him. So actually, I actually disagree with a lot of people who would say that battles, their go-to guy, um, he's their leading scorer. And if you watch his games, many of his uh, baskets, he just kind of all of a sudden gets into a rhythm. Yeah, it's like he it's blacks out, and next thing you know, he's got like a 12 points and six right, minutes or right, something. Right, right. He, he has timely uh, scoring runs. You know, like in the second half, if they're getting going through a lull, uh, if they're playing an opponent who it seems like they're starting to get a little bit of steam and momentum, then all of a sudden, you know, he'll score like – three or four or five or six baskets in a row. And it'll take the opponent off guard because, you know, at that point he was kind of quiet, you know, he's done that um, all season, you know, he'll, he'll have stretches where he just takes over. But I would say their go-to guy is actually Peyton Willis, who has the ball in his hands for most of the game. And he's the one that 
starts off the game, he'll try to, you know, get, get a few baskets. Um, and maybe in the, even the start to half, he'll try to get them going. And then EJ Stevens as well. If, if you don't remember the pit game, um, Ben Johnson put the ball in his hands for the last shot. He got to the basket, actually got off a decent shot, but he missed. And, and Luke Lowy uh, was the one to tip it in for the game winner. Um, you know, and Peyton Willis, obviously, uh, in, in the uh, Asheville tournament, had 29 points, helped him beat uh, Princeton for the championship, and he was MVP of the Asheville tournament. And then when they beat Mississippi State on the road, which was their best win before Michigan, uh, he had 24 points in that game and, and really carried them. So I think – I think Peyton Willis is there is actually their go-to guy and, and, and Jameson battle. He's a guy who's just the, the, the momentum swinger. I mean, if, if they, if they, they're in the lull, if they need a basket and, the, and, and there's some point in the game when they are starting to lose momentum, then he, he does it on his own and they make sure they feed him, you know, but he's not a guy that they, they'll run a couple plays for him, but you know, he, he kind of manufactures his own shots. Um, he just shoots it from, you know, <laughs> from the logo, as they say, you know, he, he, he's, uh, where is he from? Dale LaSalle. Dale LaSalle's what, about five miles from uh, Williams arena, you know, maybe not even that. So yeah. Maybe a few miles, but he, he, he definitely shoots it from Dale LaSalle and not from anywhere in Williams arena. Cause he's got range like that. And, uh, and teams know it and they just, they're not prepared for it because it comes off guard. You know, he'll, like I said, he'll, he'll be quiet, not even really being very aggressive. And all of a sudden he'll shoot from 30 feet and it'll go in and they're like, well, okay, let's do that again. And he'll do it again and again and again. And then against Michigan in the second half, what he did was he was, he hit a couple of shots from deep and they started guarding him close. And what he's incorporated into his game more and more this year is he's taking it to the basket and he's a big, he's a big athletic uh, guy. He's six, seven, 230 pounds. So even with contact, he can finish close to the rim. And he's athletic enough where, you know, if he, if, if you don't stop him all the way to the, to, to the lane, he'll, he'll, he'll throw it down. So I really like Jamison and what he's done. You're right. He's been a big surprise. He's done pretty much his whole career. He's been able to shoot the ball, but this year he's in better shape. He's playing better defense. He's finishing more at the basket. And um, I, I just love uh, the future that he has because all these other guys that they're playing in the, in the seven man rotation are seniors. So he's the only guy that that'll be back next year. Um, that we know that they, they can kind of build the program around. Last thought for you, you said, you know, I think Ben Johnson has said he likes when battle takes those shots because it does kind of stretch the defense, makes them honor that, and then it does open things up a little bit. Another thing I think Ben Johnson's done a good job of just kind of reading back at some of your quotes that you used in the piece you wrote on the website Monday just about them being in the tournament field right now is that they they don't seem like they're, satisfied by what they've done. I mean, I don't know what their internal expectations are. It doesn't seem like they're particularly even surprised by any of this. What's your take on just kind of their, their headspace as they kind of, you know, think about nine and one and some of this national attention they're getting. Well, I think Ben and the coaching staff are, are probably are surprised, <laughs> you know, I, okay. I think they, they for sure are surprised. Um, I think the players, you know, because there are a lot of them are seniors, you know, whether they're surprised or not is irrelevant. I mean, they, they came into the season thinking that this is it, you know, like this is our last stand. Like we have, we're going to make a run at the NCAA tournament. We have no choice. This is our last season. So, you know, I, I don't think they looked at any opponent in front of them and said, Hey, you know, man, it's going to be a tough game to win. Um, they, they knew that they, they, they have to win as many games as they can to get their get themselves a chance to get to the tournament. Now, when you start off, 
winning almost, you know, every game. Well, they were seven and zero at one point, you know, after a while, when the wins start piling up in different ways, you know, you win in double overtime, you win when you have a 16 point lead and, you, and it gets down to two, you win on the last second shot. You know, you win when your leading two leading scorers are having a, a really bad half. You know, you win when your best player off the bench doesn't play and you're at Mississippi State, who's supposed to be the toughest opponent that you've played so far. Um, now you've kind of believe you can win in, in every situation. And, you know, the situations that they haven't been in, like they haven't played in the Big Ten in a lot of arenas, um, those players, those seniors have still played in big moments and in really tough environments on the road. So it's not like they they hadn't seen that before. And Michigan was struggling. You know, Michigan wasn't playing like the Michigan of old. They have a lot of talent, maybe as much as any team in the Big Ten, but they were struggling to find their confidence. And once Minnesota hit them in the mouth in the second half and they didn't stop, um, Michigan didn't know how to respond. And I think that's a, there's a – I don't like to – I'm not pointing any fingers at John Howard or his team or anything like that. I think they're a really good team. I think that that, that, that shows a lack of leadership on their team. You know, not with Juwan and, and per se, but his players. You know, when you're struggling and the team is on, on the road and they're they're outplaying you, at that point, you, you, your leadership's got to step up and say, "Hey, this is our house. Let's let's take care of business. We're better than them." And I didn't see that at all. Like they, <laughs> I mean, Minnesota was whether it was Peyton Willis or you know Jamison Battle or EJ Stevens. Um, you know, it didn't matter. They they just kept taking it to Michigan and 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 they and they and they had a lot of confidence doing it. And I think that'll continue versus every opponent they play. But like you said, the lack of depth. And then at some point, you know, the talent level is going to be so drastically different that they're going to be like, wow, you know, we're playing the best we can and it's not good enough, you know? And I think like a team like Purdue's arguably the number one team in the country, Illinois, I think is, is as talented as, as anybody in the league, especially Kofi Coburn. Um, you know, those, those teams will, might be just too overwhelming for them talent wise, unless they have a really big game, like a three point shooting game, uh, or, or again, they have just really outstanding games from Jameson Ballard or, or Peyton Willis. Well, it'll be fun to watch. It's been fun to watch so far this season. Uh, Marcus Fuller, thank you so much for checking in. Probably won't get you till the new year, because as I've told viewers or listeners on Monday show as well. Next week, no no regularly scheduled shows taking the week off. And then we'll probably get you right after um, right after the new year because they start up Big Ten play again. And it'll be interesting to see kind of where they are if they get a couple tests in there as well. So, Marcus, happy holidays. Thanks for joining me here today. Yeah, thanks a lot. Happy holidays to everybody else. Enjoyed catching up with Marcus. Does a great job covering the Gophers for the Star Tribune. Like you mentioned, they play Green Bay Wednesday um, these are not the Packers. Green Bay is two and eight. Gophers nine and one should be, like he said, an opportunity to see some of these other young players in action and give them a chance to, you know, maybe see what they can do as they prepare for conference play heating up here again in about ten days. Let's finish with the cooler. Like I mentioned, the Wild staggering into this extended break, seven four loss. Joel Erickson Eck injured in the game. We'll see how serious that is. You know, Cam Talbot gives up six goals. A lot of the things that were going well, but maybe got, uh, you know, maybe we're a little bit, you know, going a little bit too well during that long winning streak have been exposed during this four-game losing streak. I still think this is a really good team, but they are going to need to clean some things up. Maybe it's a good time for a little pause, see if they can get healthy, see if they can get right, kind of come back, get back to work, and see if they can resume what was looking to be a very promising season. Timberwolves. 
like I said, five players out in health and safety protocols as they go to Dallas for a game tonight. Um, again, a team just like the Vikings trying to get over that hump to get past 500 and beyond. They are 15 and 15 right now. They've kind of been hovering right around that mark. They've been having a, had this up and down, up and down season. Maybe they can, as they say, turn a corner and get uh, get a little further down the road. We'll see. Won't be easy with five guys out, including Anthony Edwards, Jared Vanderbilt, and Patrick Beverly, three members of the starting lineup. So we'll see about that when they play Dallas tonight. Thanks for joining me here on Daily Delivery today. Good stuff coming up tomorrow. Should have some film review. Should have uh, some more. Uh, my least favorite team is my favorite team. Plenty more to get to from this Vikings game. And we'll see you again on Wednesday. 